Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The government finalizes the latest cost of living package as details emerge on what's likely to be included and what's likely to be left out. U.S. President Joe Biden visits war-torn Kyiv in Ukraine and vows more support for Zelensky. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. Joined on my panel tonight by Fianna Fáil MEP Billy Kelleher, Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy, Irish Times political editor Pat Leahy and consumer journalist Sinead Ryan. You're all very welcome along uh, to the programme tonight. I want to come to you first, uh, Pat Leahy, and talk about this package of measures and what we're hearing um, is emerging tonight in terms of the cost of living measures that are co being considered by coalition leaders. Um, a focus on social welfare payments over that uh, contentious new energy credit that's likely to be put off now. Yeah, we're, we're reporting tonight. My colleague Jack Horgan-Jones has been working the phones when I was on my way out here. Uh, and this is after the meeting of the three party leaders, Minister for Finance and the Minister for Public Expenditure tonight. And what we're reporting in the Irish Times tonight is that there'll be a package of £1.25 All this is predicated on the package being approved by Cabinet tomorrow, but that's very likely to happen, I think. There's likely to be a €200 Euro bonus for all long-term welfare recipients, a €100 Euro bonus uh, for uh, recipients of child benefit, a €100 Euro back-to-school allowance payment. There will be no... €200 Euro electricity credit, uh, we're told. There will be staggered increases in the price of petrol and diesel throughout uh, March, June, September and October at different, uh, at different levels. So the price of petrol and diesel will go up at the pump, so that means the excise, reduction in the excise will be eased off over, uh, over that period. The 9% hospitality uh, VAT regime will be extended until the end of August, but ministers are saying this is definitely, finally, indubitably the last time they will do that. Um, so we'll see what happens with another lobbying campaign uh, in, in August. And there will be changes to the uh, business support scheme, the energy business support scheme, which will involve more money going out. Now, that money you were talking about at the top... Um, the social welfare payments given a bonus payment of 150 euro and that once-off bonus of 100 euro 
per child paid to families with children. That's down on what was announced before Christmas, so the full €140, Euro, that's child benefit, but that's not what the government are prepared to give this time round in terms of they're not doubling the payment, as it were. No, this is a smaller package than the package on Budget Day, and I think it reflects a lot of what's been going on behind the scenes in government over recent days, which I think reflects the Minister for Public Expenditure and the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, Pascal Donoghue, asserting themselves, but also a political awareness that this cost of living crisis is going to go on for some time. And there will be pressure on the government as summer approaches, and particularly as the, as the budget approaches, as there was last year, for a fresh package. I suspect that the strategy in government will be to do this now and then hold out until the budget. All right, we will be talking about all of that in more detail in a couple of minutes' time. But first, we want to go to Kyiv because US President Joe Biden has paid a surprise visit uh, to the war-torn city. I'm joined now live from Kyiv by news correspondent William Denslow. Uh, William, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. A surprise visit by Joe Biden, big symbolism involved. Um, in terms of the message here... Is this being seen as a timely photo call on the one-year anniversary or is there anything more in it? Well, we've heard from Vladimir Zelensky, Ukraine's president, addressing the public as he does on a daily basis. He says that the fate of the world order is being decided. That is why uh, the president of the United States' visit was so significant. And President Biden himself also very much uh, led into the weight of his arrival. He said that a year essentially to the day almost that Russian forces were advancing on the country, including here to the nation's capital, Kiev. He says a year on, Kiev stands, Ukraine stands and democracy stands. So while the president also pledged nearly uh, half a billion dollars in more military assistance for Ukraine, his words are very impactful as well, saying that it's not just the US that stands with Ukraine, but much of the international community too. Claire? And William, a year in, there is now a realisation, isn't there, that this is nowhere near ending. And Vladimir Putin is due to give a speech tomorrow, um, giving his own one-year anniversary speech. What are we likely to hear from Moscow? Well, it is very interesting to see what exactly we might hear from Russia's president. Of course, in recent days here in Ukraine, officials have been saying that they're expecting a heavy barrage of Russian missiles to mark the one year since the full-scale invasion. When it comes to what we might uh, hear from Vladimir Putin himself, well, plenty of speculation. Will there be... Uh, a certain amount of nuclear sabre-rattling? Uh, will there be red lines being drawn when it comes to the types of weapons that the US and its allies of Ukraine will send going forward? Of course, there's been so much speculation recently, Claire, as to whether fighter jets will be sent to Ukraine. And, of course, the big question is, will we see a further offensive launched by Russia? We 
of course, have heard from NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. He says that an offensive by Moscow is already underway. But will we see a further escalation when it comes to troop movements? Western intelligence dictates and indicates uh, rather that there isn't the kind of build-up that we saw a year ago. But, of course, we'll wait to hear exactly uh, what will transpire from Russia's president. OK, William Denislow joining us from Kiev tonight. Thank you for that. Um, and at the moment, President Biden is uh, arriving into uh, Warsaw um, as part of his tour of the region. We're just uh, waiting to see what will he emerge from the plane. They're the latest pictures we have from Poland tonight. OK, briefly, um, I just want to go to you, uh, Billy, on this issue, the issue of the war in Ukraine. Um, and Biden, on his visit, was promising more military aid, $500 million Dollars. There's also talk about acceleration of the provision of, of ammunition on the European side of things. Really a sense, and you would wonder, with this acceleration and, I guess, the promise of more weapons to the region, this is not likely to end anytime soon. No, it's not likely to end anytime soon. I mean, it would end uh, tomorrow if we had a, a statement from Putin saying that he was suing for peace and leaving Ukraine. That's not going to happen. But what we do know is that Ukraine is now still a country uh, surviving after a year's onslaught from Russia in terms of the invasion that started on the 24th of February last year. And uh, President Biden's visit is very significant. It's significant on a number of fronts. Number one, it shows the political commitment from the in, in the international order and the rule of law and the fact that the United States is standing by Ukraine. We had the European Commission. We've had many European leaders into Kiev in the last number of days and weeks. And I detect that there's a sense that, you know, if they show strength now, that, you know, it, it may convince Russia that, uh, you know, the, they're not folding their cards anytime soon. And unfortunately, war is a very terrible thing, but it is, a, it is a tr attritional and it is a case of who can last the longest, unfortunately. Uh, but I, I, I detect that, um, you know, when they speak about armaments, uh, when they speak about fighter jets, the only thing, Provisio, I would put on it is, you know, we don't want to see an escalation beyond encroachment into Russian territory because it could really escalate uh, to a stage that it would be, you know, detrimental for the world order. Mm. But in the meantime, uh, Ukraine has proven that it can sustain itself, it can fight, and I think there's now a convinced uh, right. international order that if they can push okay. a little bit further, that Russia may fold. All right. OK. Uh, I want to return to the, the cost of living discussion now. And as Pat was outlining um, at the start of the programme, what's likely to be announced by government tomorrow in terms of putting a bit more money in people's pockets to cope with the crisis. Um, from what you're hearing on this, Matt Carthy, um, would you welcome the announcement by government uh, tomorrow around um, certainly um, social welfare benefits and seeing the increases there? Well, of course, anybody who gets any additional financial support is going to welcome it. But it just appears to me that, again, the government are completely detached from the realities of what people are going through. I think there's a sense, and we've heard this in a number of debates over recent weeks in the Dáil, where government ministers believe that we're, you know, on our way down from the cost of living crisis when the reality is for many workers and families that the pressures mm. are intensifying all the time. And you know, I have to say, I'm really disappointed that there's no um, indication at all from government circles that they are going to make a move in respect of 
mortgage holders, for example, people who are... You know, what are Sinn Féin looking for specifically in that area? We want to see a, a new form of mortgage interest relief that will acknowledge the fact that in some cases, particularly those whose loans were sold off to vulture funds, um, their monthly repayments have increased way beyond the sum total of what they've received in any financial support. So we put forward a measure that would see, um, um, see support there. I have to say as well, as a rural representative, I can not understand for the life of me how government are considering increasing the cost of petrol and diesel. For the first time, people have got some sense that costs are stabilising. They're still higher than the war when this crisis began. And government's actually intentions, just as they have done with home heating oil, which mm. is to increase the cost through taxation. They're now planning to do that on petrol and diesel. And what that means is for many people who I, and I'm sure Billy represents, who have no choice but to use their car to get to work in the morning, government is actually going to make their lives harder. Is it the right time to do that now, this staggered, uh, removing, um, removing the, the discount that was afforded, removing that on a staggered basis? Is, is now the time to do that, Billy Callagher? Well, it's staggered. I mean, from the outset, this was always going to be a temporary measure. I mean, the cost of living crisis is very hard on families. It's putting huge pressure across people on lower and middle incomes. So given uh, that many yes, aren't but, I mean, the seeing yeah, the, the, the changes yet yeah. in their pocket, is, is now the time yes, to do it, I wonder? Yes, the government said last year that these were, were temporary measures. They were unwinding some of them. There's now another package of measures being announced tomorrow that will be more targeted and more focused on, on, on certain cohorts of people. But overall, I mean, like what Matt is effectively saying is that uh, the government must fund the entirety of the cost of living crisis. Now asking, but, well, well it is really Matt, and being truthful what you're asking is a taxpayer, the, the same hard work press, press families to fund this through taxation. No, you're not so, being I mean, truthful it, at all, it, Billy, because well, that's I'm not just listening to what you're saying. Yeah, you're uh, not uh, hearing and what I, I'm and saying. I just think that we, we have to be honest with people. I mean, the, the, the government can't outbid the international inflationary pressures that are on there. They must target their, their resources to the, the families that need it most. But the idea but that But you're we giving can, less than you did before Christmas. Well, I mean, what is happening from the point of view and the statements from the government and the indications are that yeah. they're obviously they're continually monitoring it. But we are going into the summer, the, the, the summer period, uh, you know, uh, energy right. demands, electricity demands should be reducing. Also, the cost of living, while it is exceptionally high, it is beginning to ease. The question is, no, it's will not. It, the, it cost, is the, the rate of inflation is reducing, but prices are still increasing. That's the difficulty that, that we have. Right. And this is happening at a time where people... Like, one of the fears I have is personal debt levels. Because I All see right. it coming through to my office. People have been borrowing to fund their household were, bills. Yeah, but and there's no light in the But, 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 but Matt, you, can, you can't have the government deciding that they can outbid. Nobody right, the, let's the get cost the consumer angle on this. Sorry, gents, let's get the consumer angle on this. Um, Sinead, when you talk about where prices are at at the moment and the fact that we are seeing inflation moderating, uh, in effect, specifically looking at energy prices, because this is a lot of where the cost of living um, price hikes have come from. Are we seeing a drop there? We saw Pinergy announcing today that they are to reduce their prices. Now, some would say they're all arguably already one of the most expensive suppliers on the market. Mm. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's welcome, I suppose, for their customers, although the price reduction is in the order of 7%. Now, when you bear in mind that energy prices have doubled in the past year, it's pretty much a drop in the ocean. Somebody was going to blink first. We've been hearing about huge profits that a lot of these uh, uh, 
producers are making. Now, that's not to say that the mm. companies here who are doling out the electricity and gas are, are making similar profits. They're not. Uh, however, uh, I think that for most people paying, it's not going to make a meaningful difference to them. Uh, I think what is good about these measures is that finally it is being targeted and there was that kind of free-for-all, uh, you know, when these started being rolled out, not unwelcome by any household, but not needed by all. Uh, and now to see it being targeted towards... Um, you know, people on social protection packages or children. There's not a whole lot here, though, Claire, for the group of people who don't qualify for that, but yet aren't wealthy enough uh, to carry the, the can for themselves. So I, I think that possibly, aside from the child benefit, which we expect to be announced, there's not really a whole okay. heap here for that squeezed middle, those people who are paying the taxes to fund this but not getting anything out of it. And that, that's a shame, and they are definitely going to need something late in the year. So I'm sorry the energy credit was, was dropped, uh, and, and maybe that'll be revisited in the next winter package. Um, and that's uh, what all the signals are pointing to, to hold off mm. till the autumn where it gets a bit chillier again rather than uh, introducing it in May. Well, I'm also joined on Skype by Muren Lynch, a senior research officer from the ESRI. Uh, Muren, you're very welcome along to the programme tonight. And just um, to come to you on energy prices and where they are at at the minute, because I think people um, are unsure about whether we are likely to see those bills coming down significantly. Um, certainly the sense is... Um, from, from government, we heard Dara O'Brien saying today, you know, Pinergy have reduced their prices and other, and other suppliers should follow suit. But what are the factors that are dictating the prices that we are paying right now in our bills? So the thing that dictates the price that we pay on our bills right now is the price that our energy supplier paid when they bought the energy to sell onto us. So energy suppliers buy energy on wholesale markets and they sell it onto us. Prices on wholesale markets change daily or even hourly, but obviously our prices on our bills don't change quite that frequently. And that's because these energy companies do what's called buying forward. So a couple of months or even a year or possibly even two years in advance, they will go on the international markets and buy energy at a fixed price. And that is why when prices come down on wholesale markets, that doesn't feed through to a reduction on our bills straight away. What we need to see is a sustained decrease over a longer period of time. Now, obviously, it's frustrating when we know that wholesale prices are coming down and our bills aren't. But it's important to keep in mind that the really dizzying heights that the wholesale market saw, we never saw those on our bills. So, for example, electricity prices peaked at about 400% over their long run average, and gas prices peaked at 1,000% above. So we are shielded from those super high swings. Nobody's price of gas, thankfully, went 1,000% higher. But the quid pro quo is while we're shielded from the super high swings, it means that we don't get a drop in prices fed through to our bill straight away. We have to wait a while and see is this drop sustained. So the days, though, people will still say, look, I've still seen a massive increase in the bill that I'm paying now. Um, and it's only covering a couple of months and they're really, they're really feeling it. And we've had a relatively mild winter, people would say, as well. Are, are the days of the hyper increases uh, that we have seen this year, are they, are they over now? do you believe? Well, there are two things that determine what your bill is. It's how much energy you use and the price you're paying for it. We've come out of the winter now, which means that the energy that people use is going to go down. So that's one source of downward pressure on people's bills. 
hopefully we will also start to see downward pressure on the price component as well. But as regards the long run outlook, it's still uncertain. What I would say is that Europe as a whole is sourcing a tiny proportion of its gas from Russia these days compared to before the crisis. So that means that there is really only so many channels of shock available to us and they're kind of depleted at this stage. So hopefully we won't see any huge shocks going forwards. But apart from that, it's really anybody's guess as to whether or not prices will stabilize at relatively high levels or whether they'll continue to drop down and eventually stabilize at lower levels, which should lead to sustained reductions in bills. But right now, it's still uncertain. Right, a volatile time ahead. Pat, I suppose that's something that the government will be looking closely at, is where all these energy prices go and how they impact uh, the cost of living and, in turn, what the government needs to help to do to help people. Um, it, it does look at least like when you hear the likes of Dara O'Brien saying pass on the reductions, that certainly the government are putting it onto the providers to do a bit more. Well, the government are quite good at exhorting provi energy providers and other commercial entities to do things. They are less fond of ordering them to do things or utilising what powers they may have to compel them to do things. You're absolutely right. They'll be watching this sort of stuff very closely, of course, because their political fortunes as we have seen since the budget, are quite closely linked to the amount of supports that they offer people. So there was a bit of a political bounce, notwithstanding the cost of living crisis, which you would expect to see put immense political pressure on government as measured by opinion polls. Since the budget package, you've seen uh, support growing, stabilising and then growing mm. for the government party. So I think that would be uppermost, certainly, uh, in their minds. But energy prices, like a lot of things that are determined by the market, are beyond the scope of the government to intervene with, unless they get into those sort of market interventions that they're quite reluctant to do. And having done them in the past very keen to get away from as soon as they can. You'd like to see that though, wouldn't you, Matt Carthy? Sinn Féin would like to see more intervention at that level. Yes, and I think, you know, to hear ministers speaking as if they're observers on all of this and, um, you know, one thing that, that, that I would, I suppose, expand on what Mirren has said in terms of the prices. There's a number of different factors that relate to even the wholesale prices. One of them is the fact that um, prices have been coupled between electricity and gas, which means that ga electricity prices have risen in, at the same rate, uh, essentially, as gas. The Irish government was actually one of the opponents, the fierce opponents at a European level, to prevent that move to um, de decouple those, those costs. And eventually they relented. Likewise, with, um, the, with the windfall tax on these companies, Ford Gosh's parent company today announced profits of over three billion euros. So the suggestion that the energy companies have been in protecting or insulating families from the excesses, they've managed to make very, very substantial profits. And there hasn't been um, a taxation measure put on them. And again, the Irish government was one of those that has been a drag on actually introducing that type of a tax at a European level. Uh, Billy, on that, like, are we doing enough? I mean, the, 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 the accusation constantly is there's just not enough, that the government doesn't have enough teeth here um, to do anything about it. Uh, these costs that people will say, it feels like price gouging. 
Yeah, well, I mean, look, the like government... We had before the war in Ukraine, we, yeah. had, we had rising energy prices. Well, look, there was inflationary pressures in advance of the uh, Ukraine war. I mean, if you look at it, there was quantitative easing for the last 10 years across, across the world. So, I mean, central banks were pushing money out into the system. Eventually, that was going to feed into uh, increased uh, uh, inflationary pressures and then coupled in with the shock of the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Look, being honest, I mean, we were calling for a windfall tax and a solidarity tax long in advance of many people calling for it. It happened from a European perspective and it had to happen at European level, in fairness, Matt, for it to be effective. Mm -hmm. uh, so, many I mean, EU countries moved ahead and well, uh, actually they, forced the Irish government's yeah, hand well, on it because uh, it was... And, the, and MEPs like myself as well, thanks very much. But, I mean, we well, did, we did call for it. Well, I was one of the who was calling for it long before you yes, were... But you were an MEP But here's the, here's the difficulty. <laughs> Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the Green Party, to their shame, have actually been outliers at the European level at resisting yeah. measures that have actually forced large energy companies in particular. But Matt, that is just not, that's just not the fact. It is the, fact the fact of the matter is that these, most of these measures were moved in, in, in unison at council level. Here's a fact. Here's a fact. Irish uh, energy customers, ordinary families and workers, for 12 years were actually paying more in their electricity bills to finance the larger energy units or from the last time yourselves and the Greens were in government. Um, so that's yeah, the yeah, but, starting well, point I think we're talking about. Well, yeah, we're talking about the cost of living crisis now and, and the immediate pressures on families. I mean, if you want to look at the energy policies from years ago, it was about stimulating uh, investment in renewables. No, it was about, in, yeah. it was about right. stimulating investment in renewables as uh, well, Matt. It's slightly disingenuous. Uh, Sinead, OK, Sinead, um, just briefly on that, um, from a consumer point of view, do you think that there, there is a sense that people will feel better, I guess, after this round of payments, out, uh, after the announcement tomorrow, um, and where their bills are likely to go towards the end of the year? Well, you see, householders are feeling this on all fronts. So it's not like you can look at energy prices in isolation and say, let's do something for that and everybody feels a bit better. Their groceries have gone up by a huge amount. Um, fees and charges for things like doctors and dentists and restaurants have gone up by a huge amount. So it's their whole lifestyle has been affected by this. So offering 50 quid here or 100 quid here, I mean, welcome though it is, is not going to really crack the nut that many households will be feeling across the board with things. Uh, and when it comes to, I know Matt mentioned um, mortgage payments there, uh, in, in terms of rising interest rates, for a lot of households, that's going to have a far bigger impact than anything they have seen so far. Uh, now, you can't suddenly introduce a tax relief policy in a mid-budgetary cycle. You, you just can't do that. But even if they allowed, in terms of the vulture funds that you mentioned, even if they allowed switching to other entities that allowed people to be in control of where they put their mortgage mm -hmm. and who buys it, would be something that maybe people can do because a lot of those in vulture funds right. are stuck into that and they simply can't move. All right, OK. Um, and my thanks also to Muren Lynch from the ESRI who joined us um, on Skype tonight. We do appreciate that, Muren. Now, coming up next, efforts continue to get a post-Brexit protocol deal over the line, but has Boris botched the plan? Do stay with us. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back. My panel is still here with me. Fianna Fáil MEP Billy Kelleher, Sinn Féin TD Matt Carthy, Irish Times political editor Pat Leahy and consumer journalist Sinead Ryan. And I'm joined on Skype from Belfast by Ben Lowry, the editor of the newsletter. Thank you for joining us on the programme tonight because we want to talk all things protocol and where that is at at the moment. And will there, in fact, be a deal? Um, Ben... There's a perception that unionists will again hold up the show here. Are they being unreasonable in doing so? Well, we are a unionist newspaper and we would argue that they're not being unreasonable in holding out for certain demands um, rather than uh, holding up the show. I mean, a lot of things have happened. Remember that the UK government's position itself, the UK government has been all over the place with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And the UK government position has changed a lot. And at some times it is, uh, uh, for example, its command paper um, of, in the summer of 2021 uh, with regard to the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that both the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and, and his successor Liz Truss um, pushed has 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 claimed that it agrees with all of the unionist concerns. And uh, Rishi Sunak seems to be taking a more moderate approach. But there's definitely, I, I say definitely, I, I can't know because I'm not talking to um, the, the, the key negotiators, but there seems to be a problem, there seems to be a delay, and it might be that it's linked to what you might call a hardening of a Conservative Party position and a hardening of a unionist position. Okay. And Ben, what would it take to get a deal? I mean, look, it's a million-dollar question. Um, but, but what does that look like from a unionist point of view? Well, I think one of the reasons that it's got this far, actually, that, that, that something that, again, unionists would say, and, and we as a newspaper would agree, that has very significant constitutional um, implications, uh, which is the UK effectively losing control of its trade laws vis-à-vis um, -vis Northern Ireland. Uh, imagine for a moment if the Republic of Ireland lost control of its trade laws. Imagine if some, there was some sort of arrangement where, um, you know, uh, it worked the other way and that you couldn't um, export from the European Union. And then people said, well, look, in Ireland, you're not going to have control of your trade laws, but we're going to make it all seamless so that you can go back and forth between Ross Lair and Roscoff. Um, you know, there'd be unhappiness. And, and, that, and that's, that's, that's the, 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 uh, uh, the unionist position. But the reason it's got so far that there is this constitutional damage, sorry, the reason it's got so far is that a lot of people don't understand it. Um, and that, that, that's uh, one of the factors. So what would get a deal? One thing that people are beginning to talk about, which I don't think is very realistic at this late stage, we always argue for it, was that the UK press ahead with the Northern Ireland Protocol deal, uh, Bill. And this is the legislation that would overhaul the protocol. But, you know, Rishi Sunak wasn't taking that line and seems long ago to have given up on that legislation. Well, that would mean no restoration of power sharing in the North, wouldn't it, uh, if I'm right I mean, on that? And, the uh, overall trade agreement. Isn't that right, Ben? In what sense? Well, well, it's not likely to, to reach a resolution by getting, by getting it that way. It's a breakdown of the protocol. 
of the deal yeah. that was done? Well, the Northern Ireland Protocol um, Bill is not the most extreme position. The most extreme position is the scrapping of the protocol. Um, the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill is is, is allowing okay. the uh, protocol to be overhauled. But one thing about the Protocol Bill is to have legislation in the background that ministers might not actually act upon, but can, if in future the UK, and I think that this is a distinct possibility, the UK and the EU diverge more over time, which will leave Northern Ireland increasingly isolated from the rest of the UK. All right, uh, let's get a bit of reaction from our panel on this one, Matt. Um, do you think it's likely, listening to what Ben had to say and uh, rumblings again, I suppose, with Boris, uh, Boris Johnson's own intervention and, and where that's going with Rishi Sunak and the Conservatives, that we will see a deal being done here? I don't know is the honest answer. I think what we've seen over the past number of days is the DUP and some of their allies trying to find reasons to oppose whatever the um, final negotiated settlement is. And I think it's important to say, Ben mentioned that the British government position has changed. The British government signed up to an internationally legally binding um, deal that was you know, the withdrawal um, treaty that included the prot protocol. The reason they did so was because the European Union, as one of the negotiators, um, agreed with the vast majority of people in the north and across the island and the stated position of political um, voices right across the spectrum on both of these islands that the North needed to continue to have access to the EU right. single market in order to prevent the hardening of the Irish, the border But we know Ireland. that's not working and now. It, well, it is working. It is working for it lots is, of businesses. It is, working, it is working, but we know that and, there are unionist what, concerns, as Ben and, has and, said, and, 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 there are, and, and as a result, no power sharing and there in the were, North. And there were um, operational issues that arose from the outworking of the protocol and every party to the negotiations agreed that we needed right. to try and resolve that. What we've seen in terms of the negotiations between the British government and the European Union is an attempt to undo that and then unionists unfortunately have been moving the goalposts again and many suspect and I think with good reason that the reason for those oppositional positions is because they do not and haven't come to a point where they're willing to actually share power um, with particularly under uh, Republican First Minister. Um, Pat, on this one, um, also when it comes to the UK side of things, what game is Boris Johnson playing here? Well, there's a question, you know, that could have a lengthy answer, I suspect. Um, Boris Johnson came out over the weekend and he said, you know, that Rishi Sunak should not abandon the uh, Northern Ireland Protocol Bill that's currently kind of paused in the House of Lords. Sunak hasn't said that he's not going to proceed with it, but it is. It's, its parliamentary passage has been kind of suspended. I mean, Billy might know better than I, but it seems to me that if the Northern Ireland bill goes ahead, which is what a lot of the Eurosceptic members and mm. the, uh, the DUP uh, want Sunak to do, then the EU will not conclude a deal, uh, the deal that is, that is being currently discussed. And I think there's a, an option for the EU to simply, which it will, not, will quite likely employ uh, if they can't reach a deal over the coming weeks, which is simply to sit out this government, to extend the grace periods over the operation of the, the protocol, which would mean that many of the checks that the protocol entails uh, still wouldn't take 
place and they will simply wait for the next uh, British government. But what Boris Johnson's intervention has done, I think, is embolden a lot of the European Research Group, the hardline mm. Tory Eurosceptics, and has also given some licence, I think, to the DUP, parts of which, it seems to me, are minded to compromise, yeah. but parts which of which are Which we got aren't. that sense from Geoffrey Donaldson as well, didn't we, that initially going, this is a big moment when he talked about um, this p potential uh, compromise being found, um, and yet uh, so near, perhaps, and yet so far away on this one, Billy. Um, what would be... Your thoughts on, on whether we will see something tangible come out of these talks? Well, I would have thought that we would see an agreement between the United Kingdom and the European Union. Uh, whether or not that would satisfy uh, unionist demands is, is highly unlikely. My own belief is that the unionists have moved beyond uh, looking at the protocol in simple terms around the trade and the difficulties moving goods from uh, Northern Ireland to GB and vice versa to the issue around power sharing in general. And I think it's just caught up in that broader political debate. Uh, but I, I, I do think at the end of the day, um, if the British government moves ahead with Boris Johnson's suggestions, well, then it will be seen as negotiating in bad faith if they move ahead with the protocol, the protocol bill. And the one thing that I do detect is that the European Union's patience is, uh, you know, being well stretched, but bad faith would really put us in very difficult positions with the two trading blocks. Uh, very briefly, Sinead, will this make a difference to us south of the border when we've already been subjected to extra taxes and customs and all the delays that people experienced um, with Brexit initially well, in terms of UK shopping? When your producer, uh, researcher rang me to book me on the show tonight, she said to me, do you know when I'll be able to buy stuff in from the UK again without all the extra charges and fees on it? And here's the truth, but for ordinary consumers, they have been faced with all of this because of the mismanagement and the politicking that's been going on over this protocol, which seems almost insurmountable. Uh, so I, I, don't, I don't have an answer for her or anybody else, but I would say to people from a consumer angle, don't even think about it until it's resolved, because this mess is going to go on for an awful lot longer. All right. Uh, my thanks to Pat and to Ben. We will leave that there. Lots more coming up after this break, including another increase in uninsured drivers on our roads. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Fall MEP, Billy Kelleher, Sinn Féin TD, Matt Carthy and consumer journalist Sinead Ryan um, are still with me. I'm also joined now by media consultant Conor Faulkner, former, uh, formerly of the AA. Um, and we're going to talk about the number of uninsured drivers on the roads. It's on the increase again for the third year running. Industry experts believe that one in every 12 vehicles is now being driven without cover. Um, and Connor, when it comes to this statistic, we really are among the highest um, in Europe uh, on record of uninsured drivers still yeah. taken to the roads. Yes, we are. We're double the rate of the UK, for example. So it's a really poor stat. Um, and although it's got a little bit worse over the last three years, it's an old problem. It's been around for a long, long time. Typically, uninsured driving runs anywhere between 5 and 8% which seems an extraordinarily high number. Now, it is possible to be an uninsured driver for honest reasons. OK, know, give me the policy. honest reasons. Well, you might move from one policy to another and forget to bring okay. your wife with you, for example, or you might have a company fleet policy and think that this driver was covered when, in fact, he isn't. But 
you know, not to put a tooth in it, in the vast majority of cases, this is willful evasion. Sometimes a person might let an insurance policy lapse and just keep the car running for a month or two and then get legal again. But more typically, you're talking about people who systematically don't bother mm. paying for insurance. And you can be pretty sure, by the way, that they don't have tax or an NCT either. Um, and this is an enforcement problem and a detection problem. It's a problem that's been around for a long time. There should be a technological solution. The Gardaí have got cameras in their cars that can read number plates and can cross-reference databases, but the tool just hasn't been working very well for them. The database for years has been imperfect. Uh, I think the Gardaí have over 100 cars with cameras in them and another couple of hundred handheld devices. Um, but as plain as the nose in your face, they are not solving the yeah, problem. So the problem to, is persisting and worsening. So to, to clarify on this, there is a database to mm. check insurance status yes. of number plate of number plates yes. to see who's insured and who's uninsured. Um, but what, what is what is the big issue with that? Like, why why can't that just work efficiently? Well, that's a fair question, and it works for things like NCT and stuff. And you know, lots of people when they when they buy shopping online or order a pizza, ask themselves, how can a state system be, be as complicated or as slow moving as that? Now, it, truly, it is an enormous database project, and I know that one of the major insurers was leading on it for a while, and it does work. It's it is starting to work now reasonably well, um, but it's one facet of a detection problem. We have, we have a guard the traffic core that's chronically under strength has been seriously under strength for the last number of years. They're trying to recruit, but it's under strength. And we can see in things like road safety statistics that everything, you know, all those indicators are starting to drift on us. The NCT has a massive backlog at the moment that we haven't got on top of. All of the stuff that we got really good at in a 20-year period when we improved road safety year on year on year, it seems that those things are drifting. And, and it's evidenced here by, by this long-standing problem worsening somewhat instead of getting better over the last couple of years. And the bottom line is, Sinead, for motorists who are paying, they're paying up to maybe a 50 euro premium for those uninsured drivers who are taken to the road. Well, the Motor Insurance Bureau is uh, a system which is set up to pay the claims of drivers that are uninsured that have crashes. By its very existence, you can imagine there are drivers out there who don't care enough and think, well, if I crash into somebody, this outfit will look after them and pay it. But the truth is that you and I and everybody here who drives is paying extra on their policy. And for the more claims that these uninsured drivers have, and you have to imagine if they're that unthinking and careless about their, their the financial requirements and legal requirements, they're possibly not great drivers either, that they're maybe more likely to have crashes and accidents and maybe put, put lives in danger, uh, that that is going to increase in cost. And it, and it is a significant cost. And the companies really, uh, you know, have to charge it uh, and it is there to be charged. But I mean, there, the point, you know, the wider point is why do people feel that they ought not pay insurance, which is mandatory or cannot pay it. And there is a, a discussion to be had about the policing of this uh, and also about, um, you know, getting on top of the backlogs for the NCT for driving lessons. The amount of sure. uninsured learner drivers is extraordinary. Yeah, um, and there is something about personal responsibility, clearly, to go and get yourself insured and to make sure you are driving in insured vehicles on the road, uh, Billy Kelleher. But bottom line is, it's a policing issue here. And clearly... There isn't a strong enough deterrent to keep uninsured drivers off the road.
Well, when one in 12 are driving around uninsured, clearly there isn't a deterrent factor that is, um, you know, that has a, an impact on whether or not but people will actually make decisions. is it right that we have a system that clearly isn't fit for purpose in no, identifying it, it, uninsured drivers? No, it's not because, I mean, number one, it's, it's, it's burdening uh, the, those that pay the insurance and it is also putting at risk the, the entirety of our system of whereby people can be compensated in the event of accidents and that, that is an additional cost. But, I mean, with the technology that's there, I mean, you know, if you don't pay your toll road, they can identify you. If you purchase a ticket to go to a parking uh, place. It can d d digital recognition of, of your um, registration number. This so all the technology this, is there. This I information mean, is all in one place. Yes, it is all there. It's there for taxation, for, for your car tax. It's there for the NCT. And why we can't at this stage extend it to ensure that a digital recognition of the number plate, they should be able to identify if it's NCT'd, if it's insured, if it has tax, and if not, they should be immediate impounding. We were led to believe that this would happen. I know there was complexity in drawing up the original database, but I mean, it shouldn't be beyond the, our, our ability to actually get that right now. So is there a legislative issue here then, McCarthy, that needs to be addressed around making sure this database is rolled out properly and works? I understand there's a, there is a little bit of tweaking to the legislation that would help, but I agree with Connor. this is about resources. And what we have to, we've just had a long discussion about the cost of living. You know, one of the underlying pressures that many families, workers, businesses have been facing for a long period of time has been the cost of insurance. So government needs to take whatever measures they can do to ensure that insurance comes down. So that means facing up to the insurance industry when that's required, in other words, passing on the savings that they have because of the reduced claims. But it also means when you have this um, 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 huge cohort, which is, I think, staggering um, of people who aren't paying their insurance, that you put in place the resources in order to ensure that they are insured or they're penalised for not being insured so that we can actually try and reduce the premiums for everybody across the board. Um, yeah, so are you saying in part, do you think that people who are uninsured on the roads right now are doing so because they can't afford to pay the insurance? I have to say, I was surprised with the, the level of figure because I come from a, you know, a country area where you know, there's people who might pull a stroke on other things, but generally speaking, the one thing you'll make sure is covered is your insurance unless there's you know, um, an omission. But clearly there, there's different reasons. But whether or not there's financial pressures and everybody's under financial pressure, including most people who are paying their insurance costs. So I wouldn't provide succour to anyone who's not. We need to ensure that this is considered um, from a road safety perspective, but also in terms of giving everybody a bit of break in terms of their insurance premiums that we, you know, we can't allow some people to basically burden everybody else. Uh, yeah, on that and... Um... Uh, talking about that, Connor, and, and I suppose the cost of insurance premiums as well, because they are something that we have seen quite a hike on. We pay, yeah, we well, pay we, an awful lot for our car insurance in this We country. do, and we talk an awful lot about it. Actually, motor insurance prices have trended down in the last few years, but that's a cyclical a thing. Bit, yeah. Yeah, and, and the underlying problem remains. And uh, I think it's right to say that we don't have a legislative... We've got good laws. The guards have the power to seize vehicles. It's an automatic court appearance. The guards also have a very effective system that can tell whether a car is taxed. And if you find an untaxed car, there's a very high likelihood you've also found an uninsured car. So there's plenty of things there that can be used. I, I think it's a resourcing issue. I'm also, by the way, unconvinced that, um, that it's because people are struggling financially. And that's not to be complacent about the cost of living crisis. But this is a problem that's there in good times and in bad. Uh, we, when the country was relatively prosperous, uninsured driving was still 6 or 7%. So I think it's more a behavioural cohort. There's a group out there that actually don't give a damn. 
they reckon they can get away with it. And, and, you know, depressingly, over the years, their odds have been relatively good. But the tools are there to actually get after these people and become... We did it with drink driving. Mm. with a sea change on our drink driving attitude over a period of time. It seems we like we need to be technologically it. up to date on all of this, well, really. Well, as I say, even with the tech we've got that works at the moment, there's capacity there to be much more vigorous on uninsured driving. Sinead. Well, you mentioned the stuff there that we can do by a tap-tap. OK, pretty much our whole lives now are on app. Like, I park my car several times a week and I get the parking app to make sure that I'm paying for the parking. Now, there's parking wardens all over the city. They're all over the country and they'll be very, very quick to stack a ticket on my car if I don't do it. Why aren't, why don't we register? I go into Dundrum Town Centre, they register your reg. Why isn't there a system that we can say, hold on, while you're doing that, why don't we do this secondary job and make sure there's a back check on this car, make sure it's not listed anywhere? Not for them to do anything about it, but that it can be pinged somewhere. That's a great Maybe idea. Maybe that's naive. That's a great idea. But there's that's enough put... places that we're putting our reg... Yeah. Yeah, that, it, it does, that it can it does be seem to make up. sense. Yeah, and you would wonder, um, with all uh, the technological advances... Yeah, as and let the guards follow it up, by all means. But you, they can't be on every street. Right. Every time you cross the M50 bridge, you know, yes. you, know, you know that the system can follow you up. And, and I appreciate that okay. things like uh, data protection are, are complicated in this area. And if we're looking only at insurance prices, obviously we say do this. And it can be a complicated conversation, but other countries are doing it better than us. Um, and I think it's clear that, along with a lot of other things in road safety, we're under-resourcing this area. At the Briefly, moment. Connor, I want to ask you about the cost of living announcements mm -hmm. and what we're hearing about those uh, excise um, reductions being reversed on a staggered basis. Where mm -hmm. you think that leaves the motorists and is it a fair move at this time? Uh, well, it's sorted back to square one. Pre-pandemic, we had ridiculously expensive taxes on fuels. And even right now, although fuel has come back a bit, we're still paying 30% more than we were pre-pandemic. Um, there is too much tax on fuel in Ireland. It, it's a source of government revenue, um, but it, they continue to return to it and it distorts... Uh, it distorts the market, it adds to everybody's cost of living and it was in need of reform even before the pandemic and before the cost of living crisis. They knocked a few bob off the duty last year. Uh, I think reapplying it is a mistake. Uh, Billy, we're nearly out of time, but just to respond to that and that criticism that there's way too much tax and excise and all sorts of duties on what we're paying at the pump. Yeah, well, look, I mean, that's an old chest that we've been debating for as long as I've been What's in politics. Take? I mean, the bottom line is it's a revenue-raising measure. There's no point in pretending it any other way. It's increasing every year. Yeah, but, yes, it's, but, so but this isn't but, something... It isn't but, even but, restoring costs. But, but Matt, you will go into the, the doll tomorrow and say, we don't have enough money for the health service, we don't have enough money for education, we don't have enough money for social welfare payments. Where it's, do you want to get the money? Well, actually, the reason government increased um, the cost of it, they say it's not a revenue-generating, no, it's no, actually it is a carbon tax. No, no, it's all taxation revenue-raising measures. That'll be discussed further this week. I've no doubt about it, but that is it from us. My thanks to the panel tonight. Um, our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok, tonight BMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.